Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. This month, we're focusing on Why is Affirmative Action in Peril by Emily Bassalon. It originally was published in the New York Times Magazine in February, and obviously it's a very timely piece given that there's not just one, but there are two big affirmative action cases coming down this term. And it's pretty clear from everybody that you talk to that the Supreme Court is likely going to be restricting or even banning affirmative action when they make their decisions next month. So it's a pretty big deal, and that is why I'm deeply grateful that Ms. Bezalon agreed to participate in Article Club this month and to do an interview. It was a total joy to speak to her. She knows so much about the court, and it was an honor to get to talk to her about a range of topics, including the history of affirmative action the crucial Backy case and its impact, and her predictions on what's going to happen. So we're going to get to that interview, but I just wanted to say that if you're interested, we're discussing this article on Sunday, May 21st at 2 p.m. Pacific time, and I'd be delighted if you joined. You can sign up at highlighter.cc discussion. All right, let's get to the interview. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for being on Article Club. Hey, thank you for having me. Really great to have you because we really loved your piece, Why is, a, Why is Affirmative Action in Peril? And obviously, you know, the Supreme Court has some big cases coming in June. Yes, that is absolutely true. And one of them is very likely to decide the future, at least immediately speaking, of race-based affirmative action at colleges and universities and may well really change the rules going forward. Yeah, it's pretty amazing also about how you decided to frame this piece, like you could have easily spent most of the time on the case or cases coming down in June, but you focused on a precedent case, like a landmark case, maybe the Baki decision. And so I would love to hear more and we would love to hear more about why did you choose to center your piece there? Well, I wanted to look at the history of affirmative action and understand its origins in U.S. law. And also to understand this particular choice that the Supreme Court made in 1978. So this case, Backey, as it's known, is the first major ruling by the court. And it's very unusual because there is a split. It's called a 4-1-4 split, which means that instead of having a kind of clean majority for a single holding, there are actually weirdly kind of two majorities. There's one majority for saying that a quota-based affirmative action system is not allowed. The second ruling in Backey is more liberal majority joined by Justice Powell, who is a particular figure. He's not really a centrist exactly, but he is the swing justice in this case. And he upholds a very particular kind of affirmative action that is holistic and individual in the way that universities look at students. And it's based only on the idea that affirmative action is good for diversity, that it promotes a kind of diverse atmosphere, a diverse student body, and that that is good for everybody's learning. So it's a rationale, it's called the diversity rationale, that really precludes considering historic or current race discrimination. And that's a very narrow way of looking at the reasons for affirmative action. It has really shaped the law. And I think the whole debate around race-based admissions preferences ever since. 
Yeah, thank you for that. And also just like the really clear explanation of the 414, because also in your piece, you were talking about not just the diversity defense, but also this thing about voluntary versus compulsory um, and a number of other things. And one of the things that was really striking, um, at least for me as a reader, is how you began the piece and also how you centered the piece on a key figure, probably the most important figure, Archibald Cox in this case. And so you really sort of humanized it from the beginning, even with the first scene with Charles Ogletree. Love to hear more about why you chose to put the people first rather than say some of this other legal stuff. Well, I think I was just trying to perform that magic trick of journalism of getting you to be interested in drawing you into the piece and to care about the people who were making the key decisions. And I became totally fascinated with Archibald Cox. He is JFK Solicitor General. He's a just titan of a figure in terms of arguing cases at the Supreme Court. He's involved in the Voting Rights Act and important thinking on civil rights cases in the 60s. And then he goes back to Harvard, where he's a labor law professor. And then he gets drafted by the Nixon. Sorry, he gets drafted by the investigators of President Richard Nixon to be the special prosecutor for Watergate. And Cox gets kind of called out of not retirement, but out of like a nice academic existence by a former student of his who says, I've called like every good lawyer I can think of and nobody wants to be the person investigating the president. Will you do this? And Cox is in the 60s. He figures it's going to be a swan song. And he says, yes. And then, of course, he's famously fired in the Saturday Night Massacre that in the end leads to Nixon's undoing. But there is a several month period in which it's not at all clear he's going to emerge as the hero of that story. And in that interim, the Supreme Court decides to hear Backey. And the president of Harvard, um, Derek Bach, who is a friend of Archibald Cox, asks Cox to write a brief and to come in and argue the case. And in fact, Cox has already been involved in a previous case that didn't go to the Supreme Court. And he makes two arguments in both of these cases. One is the kind of classic historic discrimination argument for affirmative action. And the second is this diversity rationale that's based on the way that Harvard does admissions, which in which they claim that they look at all the attributes of students and they factor in race the same way they might factor in like being a poor farm boy or an amazing violin player, that it's like one factor among many. And Cox is doing a kind of classic thing that lawyers do, which is to offer alternative arguments for the outcome that you want. He doesn't mean for the court to only pick up on the diversity rationale, but that's what happens. And so I wanted to explain the kind of intellectual trajectory here and he was the the right character to do that with. What was really clear is that you want to win and he wanted to win. And we can look back now and talk about, and I think that you're speaking about this, is that maybe the diversity argument may not be as strong now, but ultimately he wanted to win. He knew who Justice Powell was and he was trying to get at least five of the votes. And he won. He got the five of the votes. Um, would you character, like, is that typical for folks who are litigating at the Supreme Court and is really the court like these nine people and you're just trying to get five votes? Yes, I think that is a smart point. Yes, it's typical. Yes, they are nine people. You're trying to get five votes. And when you're the advocate in that situation, you don't have the luxury necessarily of only presenting the rationale that you would prefer, right? You're trying to cobble together a majority. And I think you're exactly right that 
So Lewis Powell was from Virginia. He'd been the head of the Richmond School District at a time of the school board at a time when the Richmond School District refused to desegregate effectively. There are thousands of kids in Richmond schools when Powell leaves office, and I think two of them were Black. I mean, it's really just an amazing failure. And this is at the end of the 1960s, you know, years after Brown versus Board of Education, the school desegregation case from the Supreme Court. So Cox had plenty of reason to think that Powell was not going to be an easy vote to get. And there were other potential um, swing votes on the court at that moment. Um, Justice John Paul Stevens had just been appointed by Nixon. Um, I think Cox thought he was possible. One of the kind of, I don't know if irony is the right word, but one feature of this case is that Stevens, during his time on the court, became quite a staunch liberal. And I think if Backey had been decided a few years later, he would have been a fifth vote, probably for the historic discrimination rationale, like the whole, you know, the whole kit and caboodle of affirmative action. But that was not to be in 1978. And so what you see here is Cox, like, doing the best he can to to find five votes and to save affirmative action, which looks pretty doomed. Yeah, I, first of all, not to go too far afield, but when I saw that Stevens had voted that way in Backey, I was like, whoa, you know, because, you know, obviously he changes. But yeah, I really appreciate like this idea of trying to get uh, the majority and specifically on Powell, you um, you characterized him as a white genteel Southerner. And my first thought was, are there any, is there, is it possible to be a genteel Northerner? And exactly why did, <laughs> why did it? Why did Ms. Bazelon like use that term genteel? It's perfect, I think, about his politics. And one of the things is that the diversity argument seems to have worked for him, partly because he didn't actually want the law to mandate anything. And that was very, very interesting. Can you say a little bit more about why, other than perhaps he was, I guess, sort of like a, a racist and actually didn't want integration? Well, I think what you see happen in the 50s and 60s in the South is a lot of resistance to Brown. And Powell has a kind of front row seat to this. He's participating in trying to run the Richmond schools. And he is not a fan of overt resistance, right? That's like not genteel. That's like people, you know, railing against Black students. He doesn't have any interest in that. But he also is bridling at the compulsory or mandatory desegregation that Southern K-12 schools are being asked to participate in. And he doesn't think it's going to work. Um, I don't think we really know all of what his antipathy is about, but he's like a very traditional person. He gives a bunch of speeches in which he's talking about radicals taking over universities. He's like worried about the Black Panthers. You know, this is like the 1960s and people like him or traditionalists are feeling very threatened. So when he gets to the court, Backey is one of the first big cases to come his way. Um, at the end of his life, he said he thought it was his most important decision. And he's kind of looking for a way out. Um, he's a pragmatist in some ways. There have been a kind of line of justices like this on the court. Sandra Day O'Connor was like this. Um, sometimes Anthony Kennedy. There are people who are in some ways deeply conservative and Republican appointees, but they also have some sense that they need to find some kind of compromise that 
the nation can live with. And this was what Powell thought he was doing with this diversity rationale in Backey. Yeah, I loved in the piece in the middle, you're talking about the, how there's a fundamental American tension between prizing individual achievement and promoting the collective spirit of the nation's egalitarian promise between the call to be colorblind and the call not to be blind to racism. And I just feel like Backey is just really at the center of it. But you know, I taught government a little bit as a teacher, and I, of course, know a little bit about the 14th Amendment and the idea of strict scrutiny. And I still don't totally understand where <laughs> diversity came from, especially as a compelling interest. And I was thinking last year we focused on this piece about Roe right before the Dobbs decision. And it just seems like the privacy thing in Roe might be very similar to the diversity thing here. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that is another really good insight on your part where the court is kind of searching for something and what the majority comes up with is not actually a neat fit for the 14th Amendment. It's not when we look back on the case, the best, uh, it doesn't, the opinion, it's not the way that the opinion writes the best, right? So like when you talk to Justice Powell's clerks or other clerks on the court at the time, there were other arguments that would have written cleaner. You would have like a straight line. You'd be able to say, okay, like, the framers of the 14th Amendment were really concerned about the equal rights of Black people. Like, they really were. They were coming out of the Civil War. They were worried about Reconstruction. There are other instances in which they set up, like the Freedmen's Bureau, very specifically to benefit Black people who had been harmed by slavery. They understood something about, you know, a form of restitution or recompense for harm. And that is just not how Justice Appel's opinion reads. That's not what he's doing. And the diversity rationale really honestly comes from Harvard. It comes from the Harvard admissions office in the 1960s. And that is not normally how we make law in this country. It's really fascinating from your piece how a lot of the language from then is very similar to the language now, whether you're talking about um, the benefits of diversity. Like the Supreme Court does not move particularly quickly with refining some of their language. Um, and what people were fighting, um, I really appreciate also how you're talking about how the 70s at this time was also a backlash from the civil rights movement, similar to now. But the difference now, obviously, is that we have an even more conservative court. And it just seems like, um, I don't know, it just seems like a couple of the justices are extremely leery about this diversity piece. Yes, absolutely. I mean, basically, uh, the oral argument for the Harvard, and there's also a case in the University of North Carolina, the argument last fall, both Alito and Thomas were basically scoffing at diversity and saying, like, I don't even really know what this is, which is kind of strange because at this point, there's a lot of research about the benefits of diversity in employment and education. Like, it's really pretty clear that actually it's true that people do benefit from being in a kind of um, environment where there's a multiplicity of viewpoints. And while people's race doesn't exactly track with their viewpoints, when you have multiple racial perspective, it tends to enrich the conversation. It's not the only kind of diversity that does that, but it's an important kind, especially in the United States, you know, where obviously like racism continues to be a, a kind of cause and root of social and economic division. So there's plenty of evidence of that. But if you are a, you know, arch conservative justice, your view, and this really is the view of Thomas and Alito, and we're about to find out how many of the other conservatives share this. But certainly the Thomas Alito position is that 
the constitution is colorblind and that you're not choosing in the way that you were talking about before that I was trying to frame. You think that colorblindness is what the framers of the 14th Amendment wanted. Their concern was not the aftermath of slavery and the harm to Black people. It was a very formal and abstract notion of equality. Yeah, there was that weird thing. I listened a little bit to the oral arguments. There was a weird thing about how they didn't consider, like, basically that some of the things after the Civil War were not race-based because they were for former enslaved people. Like, it was actually the institute. It was very wild, like, how they were, like, trying to figure out the difference between, like, a race-based um, piece versus a race-neutral piece. Yeah, well, there's this moment where Justice Kavanaugh says, would it be constitutional to have a benefits program only for the defendants of formerly enslaved people? And I also was really struck by that. I don't know whether what he was exactly, it was framed as a question. It was a little hard to tell what he was doing in that moment. But, you know, one possibility is that you would have a much narrower form of affirmative race-based affirmative action that was for the defendants of formerly enslaved people and not for all the other kinds of, you know, racial and ethnic diversity we have in the United States. But I I don't know what like thought bubble was in his head at that moment. Yeah. Also, I feel like they're trying to really figure out what it even really means to be a textualist. And I know that these sort of terms are sort of like used sometimes loosely, but the idea of being an, orig an originalist, sorry, or a textualist, I can see, I guess, this whole point that if you just read the words of the 14th Amendment, maybe you can go down, you know, sort of like a colorblind type of thing. But I think that uh, Justice Jackson, especially, it's like, how can you be an originalist and look real basically to think that to be an originalist is only to talk about the framers of the 1700s rather than the intent of the 1800s? Do you think that the justices sort of like, why would you think that somebody like Alito or Thomas is sort of like changing their way of, an, I, I feel like they might be changing the way that they interpret something based on their own form of originalism. Well, I think you're right that the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments have been a kind of problem for originalists so, or for conservatives. If you're a deeply conservative, like this was Justice Scalia's stance, it's much, and, and you want conservative outcomes. Now, they would say they're not outcome-driven, but just like set that aside for a minute. The Constitution that has existed in the 1780s is like really your friend. It gets you where you want to go, right? And where it's gotten them recently has been the individual right to bear arms, although I would argue that is actually a, a misreading of the Second Amendment. They are very wedded to it. The Reconstruction Amendments are a problem, potentially, because when you look back at the congressional debates, um, the radical Republicans, different kind of Republican in that era, were very concerned about the harms of slavery. And so to a degree, they have just sort of sidestepped this whole debate um, or it's come up in these very particular ways. Um, Justice Scalia, at some point in his career, called himself a faint hearted originalist. And he also embraced Brown versus Board, which has become the kind of, you know, totemic Supreme Court opinion that almost no one really questions. And so if you try to imagine the 14th Amendment as being colorblind and abstract in its conception of equality, you're really going further than all of that. There's one other legal wrinkle here, and this is a little in the weeds, but I'll throw it out there. Another... Um, law at issue in affirmative action cases, including the current one, is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And it was passed in 1964. And the legislative debate about Title VI 
has some stuff about remedying past discrimination in it, which was very important to Thurgood Marshall, who is another important character and justice in the Backy um, debate. But it also has a more formal, colorblind, abstract notion in the legislative history. And I wonder if the Supreme Court is going to rest all or part of its current decisions on Title VI as a way of just kind of escaping the debate over the origins of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, I was I was reading about that, too. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know very much about that. And it just seems like they are trying to figure out a way. And I think it's because they like maybe a lot of Americans are just really interested in all of this going away, meaning racism going away, meaning the moral and historical pieces going away. It's like that they want to have an endpoint, again, similar to abortion. And I'm trying to figure out, like, why do you think that they are so interested in that? Like, even in the 1880s, you were talking about how the court was like, oh, everybody should be equal now, you know, just like 10 or 20 years after the Civil War. Like, do you feel like that's in a very American thing? Or is that something that you feel is also a special obsession of the Supreme Court? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's an American thing. I mean, I think that white people have a very short amount of patience for really thinking about the harms of race discrimination, like incredibly short. I mean, you're right. I included the 1883 decisions that the Supreme Court made because it was kind of crazy to go back and read that and realize that they were declaring the harms of slavery to be like all done and taken care of. And like the generation of people who had been enslaved were still alive at the time. I mean, it just seems honestly shocking how little interest in sustained interest and patience um, a lot of white Americans have had. There's a kind of indifference. We've never really had a huge moral reckoning when you compare the way we talk about and or our kind of indifference to this as a country to like the way that South Africans had a truth and reconciliation process or the way Germans have dealt with the aftermath of the Holocaust. I mean, we're just like not even on the radar. And so I think that is part of what you're seeing from the Supreme Court in these cases is a reflection of that kind of antipathy. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Emily, for all of your time and for this piece. I have one last question. You don't need to answer it, but we want your prediction. If you have a prediction, what do you think the Supreme Court might do in June? I mean, I think the Supreme Court is going to end affirmative action as we know it. I'm not like 100% sure about that. I'm also should warn your listeners, I'm like a terrible predictor, and I often turn out to be wrong. But I did not see at oral argument interest in sustaining the current model. And the current model has some problems. Let's be clear. Like when you pick apart the way Harvard does admissions, and I'm not even talking about the race part, just the whole, the way the sausage is made with the athletes and the legacy and the wealthy donors, kids, like it's not pretty. And so the conservatives have plenty to work with there. And I think the big question is going to be what kind of room does the court make for continuing to take into effect factors like socioeconomics, which to some degree correlate with race in this country in a way that could allow some racial diversity to continue. I think there's going to be some wiggle room. Um, It was pretty clear from Justice Barrett, and I think 
Kavanaugh's questions that and Justice Chief Justice Roberts that, for example, schools would still be able to ask applicants about overcoming adversity. And if your answer had to do with race discrimination, you would be able to write about that and schools would be able to credit that. Um, and give you, you know, a kind of like a leg up is the wrong word because that suggests something I don't mean. But like they would be able to say like, oh, well, that counts. And that's a kid we want to have here. So I don't think it's going to in, like it, we're going to move to some pure merit based system, nor do I think that even such a system is possible, honestly, um, or would be a good thing. But I do think college admissions is likely to change. I also think that this decision is likely to spawn more litigation because schools are going to have some signals about what to do next. They're going to try different things. You know, what if Harvard and UNC's what if their numbers don't change that much? Like, what if they figure out other ways to keep the same kind of demographic class they have now? They're going to get sued again. Um, and then we're going to find out more about what the court really meant. So I think the court, this is another similarity. In the abortion case last year, the court said basically, like, we're trying to get out of the business of deciding abortion cases. But in fact, like the court is right back in the middle of it. And I think that's likely to happen in this domain as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Emily, for your piece, as well as for sharing all your views here. Thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. Thanks for your great questions. I want to thank Emily Bazelon one more time. I'm deeply grateful. Thank you so much for doing Article Club. And also thank you for your outstanding article. Also, I'm deeply appreciative to all of you for listening to this interview, and I hope that you appreciate the article, as well as join us at our discussion coming up on May 21st. Everybody, I hope you have a great week.